0: Hi, Amy Gastelum here. Before we play our show, I want to ask you to make a donation to Making Contact. Become part of our group of supporters who believe in the power of independent media. We can only do this work with your support. So please take a minute, go to our website, radioproject.org, and make a generous donation.
1: Making Making Contact. Making, making making contact I'm Lucy King and on today's making contact
2: everybody's labor is valuable all wealth is generated through the work of the living world making money off the movement of money is just extraction of wealth from other people
1: Today we're exploring the world of worker cooperatives through an edited piece from the podcast Upstream, hosted by Della Duncan. We'll look at the ways co-ops offer an alternative way of organizing enterprises within a capitalist system and how they give communities more control over wealth, especially in places where people have been historically excluded from economic opportunities.
0: What is the value of resources, what is the value of of the objects that we bring in and out of our life, whether it be food or bikes or energy, (laughs) and and what is the value in the way that those things are created.
1: We'll zoom in on how one co-op in Richmond, California, is providing much needed bicycle repair services in a majority black and brown community, while also empowering its workers.
3: Cooperatives take a direct swipe out on capitalist greed. One thing that I feel cooperatives do is they give the value of an individual's labor back to that individual.
1: All that and more coming up.
4: We're here at the Urban Till Farm in North Richmond. We're right across from uh, where the Richmond Oil Refinery is, the Chevron Oil Refinery. And we are meeting Doria Robinson uh, to talk to her about her work with the Cooperation Richmond Movement.
0: Richmond is uh, a city in the East Bay and San Francisco Bay Area on the eastern side of the bay directly across from one of the wealthiest areas, I think not only in California, but I think in the nation of Marin County.
4: Doria is a third generation Richmond resident and the executive director of the Urban Tilth Farm, a community-based organization rooted in Richmond and dedicated to cultivating a more sustainable, healthy, and just food system.
0: Some of the neighborhoods here are the poorest in the state. Actually, the neighborhood that we're right outside of, North Richmond, has one of the lowest income levels, the highest poverty rate, the highest unemployment rate, highest rate of violence, highest rates of, you know, diabetes, heart disease, you name it. This community is really just burdened with it.
4: Richmond has been an industrial town from the start. In fact, the Chevron oil refinery was built there in 1902, three years before Richmond was even incorporated. During World War II, the city grew rapidly in population as workers came from all over the country to work in the shipyards that sprouted up around Richmond's deepwater port. Many of the residents of Richmond can trace their ancestry back to this point in time when the population jumped from a sleepy 23,000 to well over 100,000 with a high proportion being African-American, coming primarily from the rural areas of Texas, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Today, Richmond's northern periphery is on the front lines of the Chevron Richmond refinery, processing over 240,000 barrels of crude oil every single day and creating a toxic environment for those living in the surrounding vicinity. It's an example of what we call a sacrifice zone, a community that has been largely incapacitated by environmental damage and economic neglect. Because of the many challenges that Richmond faces, Doria, along with others, founded Cooperation Richmond, a cooperative incubator set out to help build community wealth for low-income communities and communities of color in Richmond. Here's Gopal Dianeni of Cooperation Richmond, who's been involved in movements for economic, environmental, and racial justice since the 1980s.
2: Cooperation Richmond is an organization that we have developed for the purpose of supporting Worker-owned and community-owned cooperatives in Richmond, California, which is one of the poorest parts of the Bay Area, a majority people of color community. Mm-hmm. And we provide coaching, connections, and capital is kind of the way we talk about it. And um, we're focused on folks who are most excluded from the dominant economy, who we think should be the foundation of building the next economy.
4: And uh, why why cooperatives as the vehicle for helping folks who are excluded? into the next economy? Where where did that idea of the cooperative as the vehicle come from?
2: Well, there's a a few different pieces of that. Um, So the first is bosses just suck. You don't need them. Everybody's labor is valuable. All wealth is generated through the work of the living world. Making money off the movement of money is just extraction of wealth from other people. So the idea of people, all of us being able to voluntarily co-participate and control our own labor to meet our needs and the needs of our communities and to share that wealth, to create commons of wealth and commons of resources is what we think is a necessary element of the transition that we need to be in. The dominant economy extracts wealth from the living world and and it begins with extracting wealth from our own work. And so in order to both confront that but also to build a new kind of muscle memory and how to be in the world, to actually practice self-governance on a daily basis, we need institutions, infrastructure that can do that.
4: Okay. Hold up. Before we go any further, what exactly is a worker cooperative? Here's Sofa Graydon, who teaches politics at King's College London, with a
5: brief Cooperative 101. A worker cooperative is a firm that is owned and managed by its own employees. Worker cooperatives can be found all over the world, with varying degrees of influence. They rose to prominence during the Industrial Revolution as part of the labour movement. Since their inception, there have been a set of principles at the heart of worker cooperatives called the Rochdale Principles, enshrining their common values of democracy, transparency, collectivity and concern for the community into their work as a movement. In worker co-ops, employees are called members, and they vote in all strategic decisions, similar to shareholders in a corporation. But the difference with corporations is that in a worker co-op, one person gets only one vote, just like in a democracy. An interesting and important aspect of most worker co-ops is their pay ratio, the difference in pay between the highest and the lowest paid workers. In most cooperatives, the pay ratio is one to one, meaning that everyone gets paid the exact same amount. Sometimes it's a bit higher than that, but not nearly as much as in traditional companies.
1: Lucy here from Making Contact, just jumping in to say that the average S&P 500 company's CEO-to-worker pay ratio was 324 to 1 in 2021. That's according to an analysis by AFL-CIO, a federation of labor unions.
4: To learn more about the advantages of co-ops, here's Esteban Kelly, the executive director of the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives.
6: So we know this now through longitudinal economic data, that worker co-ops are more stable and successful compared to traditional business models. They're also more efficient, it turns out. So, yeah, there's there's kind of a lot of economic data on the, the benefits of worker ownership. And then there's all the squishier stuff, the sort of social impact of civic engagement, leadership development, increasing financial literacy among women and minority business owners, even if that business ends up closing after a couple of years, you now have a whole community of people who have really upped their game in um, getting the kind of leadership development and education that traditionally is only accessible to middle class or even upper middle class and wealthy people. Worker co-ops used to be a strategy for people to opt out of the economy and do something alternative, and now it's a mechanism for people to opt in. Mostly low-income people, poor people, immigrants, people of color, formerly incarcerated people who have not had a strategy or an option to enter into a formal economy in a way that was not completely extractive or demeaning and demoralizing. And so worker co-ops have been adopted at the fastest rate from historically marginalized people in the U.S. as a way to enter into the economy.
4: Founded in October 2017, Cooperation Richmond is plugged into a broader national movement that includes similar initiatives throughout the country
2: there's cooperation richmond there's cooperation jackson there's cooperation texas which came before either of the two of those it's actually it's a really good example of what we call translocal organizing so we are all connected together and so many other organizations who are supporting cooperative development are connected together because we share a common vision because we're um, sharing strategies with each other and because we're working together. And so in that way, we're all connected. And so we chose Cooperation Richmond because it sounds great and it speaks to our larger relationship to a movement.
4: Cooperation Richmond played an important role in helping to get rich city rides off the ground.
3: Cooperatives take a direct swipe out on capitalist greed.
4: And the voice you just heard was that of Najari Smith.
3: Somebody at the top of the pyramid having to say over everybody else's um, livelihood. One thing that I feel cooperatives do is they give the value of an individual's labor back to that individual.
4: After growing up in the Brooklyn projects and serving some time as a young adult, Najari decided to come out west after the company he was working for offered to relocate him with a promotion. In the ensuing months, Najari quit his corporate job, separated from his wife, and eventually found himself living in Richmond, California, where, using his savings from his liquidated 401k retirement account, he founded a cooperative bike and skate shop called Rich City Rides. Why does Richmond need a bike and skate shop?
3: Richmond needs a bike and skate shop because, well, for one, there's no other bike shops in in like a five mile radius of Rich City Rides. We're the only bike shop in the city.
0: Rich City Rides bike and skate shop is this really powerful story. Before Rich City Rides, if you wanted to do any repairs to your bike, you had to go to Walmart, which is not exactly a bike repair place, or Target. That was it. And so people mostly just like threw their bike out if they got a flat. Like literally threw their bike out. (laughs) It's kind of painful to see. You know, oftentimes bikes are associated with gentrification and kind of an elitist thing you do on the weekends. In Richmond, it's really different. People can't afford cars or their car is constantly breaking down. So they'll default to a bike just to get to work or just to get to the store or just to go get around. And so it actually is is a need. You know, people actually needed to have a place to be able to fix their bike, which was much Cheaper than trying to find another one.
4: Najari started rich city rides with Josue Hernandez, a first-generation immigrant who grew up in North Richmond, and Tay McGee, father of five with a history with the law. They first worked out of a storage space and other pop-up locations until someone offered them a storefront on the main street in Richmond, which was completely boarded up at the time and had been for years.
0: They were really running a pretty substantial business with nothing. And there's just no prospect for them to actually get to a point of profitability. They were not not even close to profitability without having capital. Like they needed more inventory. They needed a facelift, you know, like the shop didn't look like it, you know, looked like somebody's garage, you know, because that's that's they were just finding display cases off the street, you know, and bringing them in and spoozing them up. And, you know, and so they came to us and they're like, you know, if we had capital, we could make this work. We have a vision. They had a business plan. They had a bunch of, of the right things wrong with it, you know. And so they were our first project.
3: We show we show the folks here that it's possible to start a business. We're an example of what a cooperative business is. We show that it's possible for black and brown communities to create these things. It's a total, it's not even a 180 from any corporate jobs or any other jobs that I've ever worked. This is a totally, it's a different world. It's a different, it's the new economy I want to see.
4: Rich City Rides has grown into a successful business on McDonald Avenue and is one of the only locally owned businesses on the block. Not only has the store created meaningful work for three men who were up against a capitalist economic system that would have preferred to extract value from their labor or profit from their incarceration, but Rich City Rides has also become an important part of the Richmond community. Putting together social bike rides and running a bunch of different programs, they also offer free bike clinics once a week where locals can come in and learn how to repair their bikes using the shop's tools.
6: um, Hey, you think about the the
3: crane tool? Fix It Fridays here at the bike shop. If you are attempting to do a repair and you're not quite sure how to to do that, um, we'll lend you the tools. um, We'll talk you through it and show you how to do it. So we have this thing that's called a bicycle recovery. Can I can I humor you with this with this with mm-hmm. this tale of, of we have um, a bicycle recovery program. You know, so far we've recovered 41 bikes since um, since we've been in existence. And a gentleman came in with a bike. We know these bikes because we we just it's a close community. Gentleman comes in with a bike and we look at it, somebody, um, I, tap, I tap one of my partners on the shoulder, one of the other co-owners, and I say, hey, that's um, such-and-such's brother's bike. And he's like, yeah, that is. So my partner tells him that he can't leave out the shop with that bike because the bike is stolen. And he tensed up. He, you know, it looked like this could have become a, a, a physical altercation. And we um he tells us the whole story. He says, You know, I just came back to Richmond. Every time I come to Richmond, something like this happens. You know, grew up here, giving me the whole story of just how his how his days been, his weeks been, how he just got out, just got out of jail. And this happens and immediately one of the other co owners, he grabs a bike that was donated to the nonprofit that we work with. And he says, you know what? Take this bike. You know, you can't leave with this bike. And the bike that we gave him was exceptionally better than that bike. And, you know, the guy starts tearing up a little bit. You can see like a tear welling up in his eye. And he's just so thankful. He came back to the shop several times after that you're not going to get that experience in Target. He <laughs> won't get that at Walmart. Walgreens is not going to say, hey, you know, you stole that pot. You know, that pen is ours. We know who that, you know, they're not. They're going to... It's a different experience where we actually turned a, a, a bad situation into a, into a positive friend-building, community-restoring scenario, you know. And it's not the first time things like that have happened. People feel comfortable here in a way that's, that, that, that I just, I don't see in a lot of other spaces. You know, we know their names, they know each other's names, people. It's a community space.
1: This is Making Contact. You've been listening to an edited guest episode on worker cooperatives from the podcast Upstream. Visit us online at radioproject.org for more information. And now back to the show with Gopal Dianeni from Cooperation Richmond and co-founder of Movement Generation.
2: Cooperatives allow us to do things that the extractive economy won't do. We would never exclude folks because um, they were formerly incarcerated, because we don't believe humans belong in cages. We would never exclude folks based on their status uh, as documented or undocumented because we recognize the border as an enclosure enforced through violence that fragments ecosystems and communities. So we are able through cooperation to actually live our values in a way that is foreclosed upon in the dominant economy. And particularly for those who are most excluded because that's where the measure of the success of our political projects is how well it meets the needs of those whose needs are met least by the dominant economy.
0: The democratization of the workplace is something that can't be like underestimated in a work cooperative that's really run through democracy, through voting and through each owner having a say in you know, the day-to-day decisions as well as the trajectory of the enterprise. That's really big, especially in communities like this where power has really been taken out of the hands of the people and people are meant to just be arms and legs, extra appendages for the people in power. That transition of decision-making as well as the transition of profit-making to the people and the transition of accountability and responsibility is truly transformative. As soon as people really get a taste of being in a position of power and being in a position to make decisions that impact yourself and other people who depend upon you that impact your livelihood <laughs> that extends out to other things right it doesn't stay within that realm especially because even just running a business you realize that the you know the city government impacts you and decisions that are made around the streets impact you and all these different things start to you realize all the things that impact you and that you actually do have a voice and that you can stand up and you can advocate for things. That's, that's really the goal.
4: The story of rich city rides is even more radical when you find out how few cooperatives there actually are in the United States. Remember earlier when we talked about how the number of worker co-ops in the U.S. is growing? Well, they are, but there's only actually a very small number of them.
1: Hi, Lucy here from Making Contact again to bring you some updated numbers. There were over 600 worker co-ops in the United States in 2021, compared to over 3,800 in France and at least 25,000 in Italy. There's historical reasons why there are more co-ops in these other countries, but Dell is going to explain another piece right now.
4: One of the biggest barriers faced by the cooperative movement in the U.S. is that people simply don't know they exist. Other challenges can be finding the initial capital to get started and navigating legal issues. This is why organizations that support cooperatives, like Cooperation Richmond, as well as others like the Federation of Worker Cooperatives, the Sustainable Economies Law Center, and the Working World, are so important. They provide the legal, financial, and technical assistance that traditional institutions don't. But ultimately, there's something else that lies beneath all of these challenges a deeper issue that explains a lot about the state of cooperatives in the U.S.
0: One of the biggest challenges that's really on point right now is just the culture, right? The the current culture that people are living in, their, their worldview, their frame of mind, defines success in a way that is not necessarily in alignment with cooperative values. The collective has really been destroyed in modern capitalist, uh, industrial, capitalist, post-industrial, capitalist world.
4: To learn more about the interplay between cultural values and cooperatives, we spoke with Gorka Espiau, a researcher based in Bilbao, a city located in the Basque region of northern Spain, whose work explores innovation models and their relationship to cooperatively structured workplaces.
7: Yeah, it's it's fascinating that you're coming from the Bay Area because actually I think there is at the moment a global discussion about what are the innovation models. And there is one leading innovation model that comes from the Bay Area that is based on the individual talent and that in our experience is a myth because there is no single company that is based on the individual talent. There is always a collective action around it. But what is interesting is that in the Bay Area, you have created a narrative about it that is, that is conditioning the way that things are operating. So this is the story that people are telling about what innovation is and how innovation operates.
4: When Gorka talks about narratives, he's referring to what is called in critical theory the metanarrative, an overarching account of a society's beliefs that gives people within that place meaning and legitimizes their experiences. It's like the ultimate story that underpins the values of any culture and is often held unconsciously. The Bay Area's narrative drives our idea of how social innovation works. It explains why folks here treat Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and Steve Jobs like gods, fetishizing the individual and completely erasing the community that supported them, the public infrastructure that grounded them, and the collective wisdom that they built on. It explains how people can rationalize billionaire CEOs and minimum wages that nobody can actually live on. But the Basque narrative couldn't be any more different. at the Aguirre Center for Social and Political Studies at the University of the Basque Country, located just 60 kilometers northwest of the town of Mondragon, famous for being the home to the Mondragon cooperatives, the largest ecosystem of worker cooperatives in the world. But the prevalence of the cooperatives in this region goes far beyond just the Mondragon Corporation. The whole Basque region of Spain is rich with cooperatives. And it's also one of the most equal societies in the world.
7: In the Basque Country and in Mondragon, we have a totally different model that says, no, innovation is not about one individual. Innovation is about the collective capacity to do things differently. Uh, Instead of saying, I need to look for the talent, I need to look for the special person that is more intelligent than the others, and then to pay that person more, The Mondragon model is the alternative. It says, no, 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 we all have talents. We have different talents. We just need to create a collective permission to operate in that way.
4: The focus on efficiency and profit maximization are integral to the capitalist mindset and form part of the meta-narrative in the Bay Area that contributes significantly to the structural inequality that makes it one of the most unequal societies in the world.
7: What we are discovering, that actually what, what is going on, is that in those stories that people tell in other areas, there is a story that, about the inevitability of inequality. Like people saying, now, I know it's wrong, but there is nothing you can do about it. And once that story is operating, then there is not much you can do. And you see that in London today, probably you see in the Bay Area, you see it all around the world. While well, actually here, people know because they have experienced it, that actually inequality is not inevitable, that it depends on your decisions as an individual, but actually as a society. So then you realize that actually, I'm sure if you go to the Bay Area to certain communities and you kind of listen to the people in a different way, they will tell you a very different story about who they are and most importantly, who they want to be. What are the values that they would like to associate it with? And that is the fundamental base for constructing an alternative. Because once that you want to tell a different story and want to give more power to certain values, then change happens very rapidly. I don't think
0: we're ever going to solve this by having a race to the bottom and winning a race to the bottom, winning a race to the cheapest thing, to the best price point. We're never going to win that race. We have to change minds. <laughs> and change minds when it comes to what is the value of work, what is the value of resources, what is the value of of the objects that we bring in and out of our life, whether it be food or bikes or energy, (laughs) and and what is the value in the way that those things are created, um, whether they're created sustainable or whether they were created in an extractive way.
1: That was Doria Robinson of Cooperation Richmond and the Urban Tilth Farm. You've been listening to an edited version of part one of a series on worker cooperatives by the podcast Upstream, hosted by Della Duncan. You can find part two of the Upstream series at upstreampodcast.org and linked from our website. And that does it for today's show. If you'd like more information, visit us at radioproject.org or find us on Twitter or Instagram. And if you have thoughts about today's episode, leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Lucy Kang. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.